everyone, and welcome to another installment of the Codcast from Commonwealth Magazine. I'm Michael Jonas, and I'm joined today by my colleague Bruce Mole, and we are happy to welcome to the Codcast Senator Jamie Eldridge, Democrat from Acton. Welcome, Senator Eldridge. Thank you, Michael. Thank you, thank you Bruce. Glad to be on here. So we are going to talk a little today about Democratic Party politics in Massachusetts and. Uh, this was spurred by a email that uh, Senator Eldridge sent out to uh, some fellow supporters of uh, Senator Bernie Sanders uh, recently. Uh, that email uh, then found its way into the hands of a reporter <laughs> at the Boston Globe, and that in turn landed you on the front of the front page of the Boston Globe uh, mm-hmm. recently in a story that uh, that talked about uh, your wish to sort of see see the party, I guess, move to the left, sort of uh, mm-hmm. uh, uh, see progressives uh, uh, sort of step up and, and, and try to insert uh, themselves into the party's operations at various levels. Uh, I guess it, a big focus of the story was even the suggestion you made that that could include running uh, for offices even in primaries against fellow Democrats. So it was uh, sort of uh, the idea that you were stirring the pot here. Some thought it was even a Insurrection or a sacrilegious uh, <laughs> call on your part. What was what was what was really the message that, that you were trying to convey through that through that uh, letter you sent out? Yeah, no, th- thanks for asking. And and so, I, I do think that the context of the email is that this was a, a long chain of emails from Bernie Sanders delegates. All of you know, we all went to the national convention in Philadelphia. I was a Sanders delegate. And quite honestly, after the convention, there were a lot of people uh, unhappy with the Democratic Party most of the National Democratic Party, but also talking about uh, their frustrations with uh, the Democratic Party and Democratic legislators in Massachusetts. And part of that was, you know, whether they should leave the Democratic Party and, you know, join the Green Party or another candidacy, another party. And, you know, what my message was, and, and the Globe just focused on a small piece of it, what my message was is stay within the Democratic Party, you know, get involved with your Democratic town or city committee, um, you know, advocate, push uh, le- legislators, other Democratic elected officials to the left, uh, including the Democratic Party platform. And yes, uh, also uh, consider running for office. And um, that seemed to be the, the most provocative suggestion. And it was really just saying if you're unhappy with um, your elected official, um, then just as uh, we all as elected officials ran for office and continue to do so, they they should continue as well. So it really was that big picture view. And I will say it's created a big discussion, not only amongst my colleagues, who obviously have mixed opinions on on the email, but also just the public in general and, and activists that have, you know, for the most part found it refreshing and, and a big discussion about, you know, where does the Democratic legislature, whether the House or Senate sit on issues you know, why um, have we mostly had a Republican governor, you know, over the past 30 years? Um, and, you know, what kind of policies are uh, taking place and in passing into law on Beacon Hill? And, I mean, I think you're right that there was a lot of ground you covered in the in the message. The, the idea of people running, you know, against incumbents was certainly what, what got attention. I mean, were you surprised? Uh, you know, as you say, there really should be nothing wrong with people saying, you know, let's have more vigorous, uh, you know, elections, more contested races, but it seemed to uh, uh, sort of stick in the craw, I guess, of, of people within the state party. You, you came in for 
you know, a bit of a, a bit of a, of a blistering from some <laughs> folks there. Were you, I mean, were you surprised at how, how, uh, how much that seemed to rattle people? I wasn't entirely surprised. I will say I was surprised by the executive director of the Mass Democratic Party, Jason Cotty, uh, suggesting that somehow uh, the Democratic Party or elected officials are, are a, a uniform, you know, monolithic body that all agree on the same things. Um, I think it's the um, uh, commentator Dan Kennedy who said that, you know, in Massachusetts there are two parties, the liberal Democrats and the conservative Democrats. Um, and I, I think that that is the case in the legislature in terms of what gets passed and you know what doesn't get passed. And um, I do think that when you are an elected official, it's you know generally difficult to run for office, and you know you sometimes feel that I'm so busy doing my job as it is that to you know have someone challenge me uh, is is a, is a burden. I would respectfully say that you know that's that's the job. Um, I think competition makes people. Uh, do their jobs better in, in whatever profession they're in. I, I know myself, I've had an opponent, you know, almost every election cycle for the past eight cycles, and it's absolutely made me a better legislator and do more outreach and, and work harder. Um, so, you know, in terms of my, my colleagues, I, I, I do want to emphasize that, you know, what, what I have focused on as a legislator and, and, you know, essentially progressive Democrat is, you know, helping get people elected to the legislature who are progressives in open seats. You know, I've, I've never challenged an incumbent, you know, Democratic legislator. But I do think from the activist point of view, from, from Democrats in general in Massachusetts, is that, you know, it it is their right and, and perhaps their responsibility to, to really think about, you know, are they being best represented and are true Democratic values being represented up on Beacon Hill? So that uh, comment you mentioned from Dan Kennedy about uh, liberal Democrats and conservative Democrats. How mm -hmm. does the House-Senate break down in that regard, and, and, and why does it break down the way you think it does? Yeah, I think that, I think what's interesting to me is that I think there's been, you know, a number of shifts over the past several years. I mean, I remember, um, you know, I was a House member under Tom Finneran when, when it was, you know, seen as more of a conservative body. And then I think when, when Sal DeMaisi became speaker, it, it was, uh, you know, fairly liberal. And, you know, I'd say uh, then Speaker DeMaisi championed a number of issues, health care, uh, alternative energy, gay marriage, of course, that, you know, for a while made the House look, you know, fairly liberal. Um, I would definitely say right now that um, both the, the makeup of the Senate, you know, is more liberal from, from a proportional point of view. There's a significant number of you know, liberal uh, Democratic senators. And, and of course, you have Stan Rosenberg, who's been, you know, long known as a progressive. And I think it's fair to characterize, and I think he characterizes himself as, as this, is that, you know, uh, Speaker DeLeo is more of a, um, you know, moderate or perhaps centrist Democrat. Um, he does talk a lot about, uh, you know, supporting the business community, being pro-business. Um, there was the, the AIM uh, scorecard that just came out this week. And, uh, there seemed to be a sense that, you know, it was a good thing that the House scored higher on, on AIM scorecard than, than, than uh, many senators. So I think right now there, there is a difference. Um, I, I would say, and, you know, as, as you may remember, I was the only clean elections candidate ran for public office. I've led the effort to oppose the Citizens United Supreme Court case. 
and, and push for things like disclosure of, of, uh, donor, of donations to super PACs is that I'm uh, very concerned about the impact of corporate special interests on Beacon Hill, both the House and Senate. And if you look at issues like uh, the non-compete bill that, that eventually didn't pass uh, to the solar uh, energy bill and the, the wind, uh, wind bill, to things like the GMO labeling bill, and I think those all, you know, have been incredibly influenced by corporate interests, and I think that's something that affects every elected official, whether House, Senate, or, or constitutional office. So when you were talking about the House and its ups and downs over the years, you've sort of mentioned the Speaker, and sort of as the House is somewhat a reflection of the Speaker. Mm-hmm. How do you change, like Bob DeLeo, how do you move him to the left, I guess is sort of would be the question. Mm-hmm. For, for someone like you, how, how would you do that? Well, I, I remember uh, under both Speaker Fitter and Speaker DeMacy, you know, I, I was the founder of the House Progressive uh, Caucus. And, you know, we advocated a bunch of issues from closing corporate tax loopholes to same-sex marriage to the minimum wage where, you know, we really organized around an issue, made it clear that, you know, we were going to vote a certain way, we were going to push back at perhaps what leadership was going to propose. And I do think, again, this is both the House and Senate side, is that progressives need to get, you know, better organized and make clear, you know, what the agenda is. And I and I do think that's one of the things that could happen between now and January is making clear, you know, what that agenda is. Is it paid family medical leave? Is it $15 an hour minimum wage? Uh, is it um, looking at taking further steps on alternative energy? But to really come in with a plan, because I think if progressives don't stick together, it's very easy to divide and conquer by whomever's in power. So in some ways you're saying it's more, I mean, it's more a matter of what the rank and file are doing and whether House liberals or progressives are are willing to sort of step up and, and sort of assert their agenda. Is that what you're saying? A- absolutely. And I, I think that... Um, what the challenge is, and this is both the Senate and the House, is that you, you of course, have progressive legislators that are in uh, positions of power. They're, you know, chairmen or, or chairwomen of, of committees. And, and what is the interaction between them, who perhaps have, you know, m- more likely the ear of the Speaker or the Senate President versus, you know, rank-and-file state representatives or state senators, and how do they come together to push, you know, a common progressive agenda? And, and I would submit both the Senate and House, I think we need to do a better job. Um, the, the thing I would add to that, which, which I've been, you know, fairly underwhelmed by with the, with the exception of some groups, is that I think that advocacy groups outside Beacon Hill have not held elected officials accountable uh, for, their, for their votes, for their views on things. I think there have been organizations from, you know, Freedom to Marry, which has pushed, you know, the transgender rights law to the Raise Up Mass Coalition, passing, uh, you know, paid sick leave and, and minimum wage, have generally been good. But I think there's a lot of advocacy groups out there that are afraid to offend any elected official. And I think that really needs to change if we really want to hold elected officials, including myself, accountable to, to a progressive agenda. And it seems to me that, you know, what you're saying about advocacy groups is kind of just a little bit true of the of the state of the political you know world in general in the you know and reflected in the fact that there are so few challengers mm-hmm. uh, so it's not just that advocacy groups but we you know we just don't see quite the vigorous you know uh, you know election cycle that 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 probably would also hold people's feet to the fire 
in the way that mm-hmm. it should. And, I mean, you said there's kind of the conservative Democrats or liberal Democrats. Some people frame it that there's just kind of the insiders and the outsiders. And I think that's part of what the what the party leaders were saying was, in a sense, mm-hmm. the insiders are the people now in power. Like we need to, we need to sort of, sort of close ranks around around that group and support one another, not not be encouraging people to come from you know from the outside and challenge. So that 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 was the message at least that. That seemed to come through from uh, from uh, Jason Cotty. Yeah, and I, I really shake my head at that because I, you know, and I think back to the challenge is always thinking back to specific races and their impact in policy. I, I think back to 2004, and that was then uh, when a very young uh, Carl Shortino decided to challenge a 30-year Democratic incumbent out of Somerville um, on a number of issues, but one of them was clearly uh, the issue of same-sex marriage. And this was 2004, so it was just a year into the SJC's decision uh, ruling that same-sex marriage was the, the, the law of Massachusetts. And a lot of my Democratic colleagues were you know, opposed to same-sex marriage. Um, they were very nervous about it. They felt that they had to be against uh, gay marriage in order to get reelected. And uh, Carl Shortino ran a very strong grassroots campaign, defeated this 30-year-old Democratic incumbent, and it set... Uh, shockwaves through the through Beacon Hill through the legislature that well wait a second if I'm not you know pro equality I actually I, I actually could get a challenge in a Democratic primary so maybe I should switch my vote and I have no doubt that it switched a number of votes and so you you had legislators thinking less about just the general election and actually thinking for the first time you know perhaps in in years if not decades about the primary and and I would argue that an issue that now you know the Democratic Party uh, champion same-sex marriage, and you know, I would argue is is a key to, to a victory. You know, not only in Massachusetts but across the country, including the presidential campaign. But that was started, you know, by insurgents, whether activists or, or people like Carl Shotino. And you know, I would argue on other issues, whether it's you know in, inequality, racial justice, uh, climate change, the same thing applies, and it actually would lead to a stronger party and uh, more successful elections. Uh, you know, including the quarter office. But isn't there, I'm sort of curious because I think the perception nationally of Massachusetts would be that we're, we're pretty liberal and, and our <laughs> legislature is pretty liberal in adopting various pieces of legislation. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you're saying we need to go further and be more progressive. And it could be, I don't know if there's any conservative Democratic caucus, but I'm sure there are the, the other point of view would say, no, we need... We need a pushback against that mentality to reach some sort of balance. In mm-hmm. other words, we're basically a one-party state, and so you need, you know, you don't want to go too far one way or too far another. So you're kind of saying we are the, the two-party state is the conservative and liberal Democrats. Yeah, and but <laughs> and but but in the I guess I'm sort of pushing mm-hmm. back up against your context that we need to we need to move in that, and I'm sure from a Bernie Sanders view that's that's the correct way, mm-hmm. but. Are we too liberal in some ways? Well, I think it, the perception is, of course, that we're very liberal, and I'd be the first to say on you know issues like choice, uh, same-sex marriage, of course, uh, we are very liberal. But I think if you look at the realities of what many Massachusetts residents are going through, I think you're 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 finding a, a state of, of of getting to the point of haves and have-nots. You you, know, you talk about income inequality. There was a study this year that you know Boston had the highest gap between those who are wealthy and those who are poor. Um, the income inequality gap is extremely large in Massachusetts. 
um, issues like, um, you know, communities of color, you know, having, you know, access to education or, you know, white collar jobs is a, there's a very significant gap. Um, even though our, our prison system, our criminal justice system perhaps might be better than other states, there's still an, you know, significantly disproportional percentage of prisoners who are Latino or African American. Um, there are, you know, policies that uh, around, you know, minimum wage and workers' rights that, you know, people are really struggling in the state. So I think when you look at it from that perspective, if the perception of Massachusetts is liberal, those liberal policies are still not serving a significant percentage of Massachusetts residents, and therefore I would argue, you know, stronger, more bolder policies need to, need to take place. Um, perhaps the best example uh, in my mind might be health care. Uh, Massachusetts, uh, especially a lot of elected officials, you know, champion, we have the best health care in the world. We have universal health care. Well, we don't have universal health care. We were the first to pass a near universal health care law in 2006. Uh, on the other hand, there are many people that can't get access to mental health services. You know, the Globe's done a whole, a whole uh, series on that. Uh, we have the most expensive health care in the world. Uh, there are people uh, living in you know, low-income communities that don't have access to dental care. So e even though it's easy to say well, we have the best health care in the world, there's so many people that are actually left out of that picture of the so-called the so best health care in the world. And therefore, I would argue, you know, we need bolder policies that, that more often than not are championed by progressive Democrats in, in the legislature or, or in the corner office if we, if we have a, a liberal governor. Do we have a liberal governor? We do not. We do not. And yet he's one of the most popular elected officials in the state. So what does that say? He, he's a very popular governor. You know, I, I think back to um, my, my work as a legislator, and, and I have no doubt that if I went to every ribbon cutting and every um, rotary club get-together and every community festival in my district and did almost zero policy work and proposed zero piece of legislation, I might have a higher re-election margin than I do now, uh, being fairly, fairly involved in policy. And my point about that is that I think the Governor Baker, you know, he's proposed some modest ideas from, you know, addressing the opioid crisis to uh, trying to fix the MBTA to addressing climate change. But I, I think they're very, very mild, and I think that opportunities where he's had to show leadership, for example, this week when Governor LePage said some very racist things about black and Latino men in cities in Massachusetts, in Lawrence and Lowell, and he gave a very, you know, milquetoast response that, you know, he wasn't going to get involved in what Governor LePage said. I, I find that deeply disappointing, and I really think that he needs to uh, be a bolder leader on a whole variety of issues. Uh, because the MBTA isn't improving much. Um, you know, we're not predicted to meet the Global Warming Solutions Act goals set out in the 2008 law. Uh, we're not addressing, you know, the education gap for, for a lot of less well-off uh, children. And inequality continues to get worse. So if you're looking at it from those uh, sort of uh, stakes in the ground, I, I think we're, we're, not, we're not on a bold path. And I think the governor needs to step up and show more leadership. It's interesting you say that because uh, there's not a whole lot of Democrats that say anything very critical of the governor, um, mm -hmm. which is, I, I guess, sort of circles back to what you started off with, uh, become more organized, become more active, become more vocal, perhaps, about what you're trying to accomplish. 
many of your colleagues seem content to just, you know, shut up and and watch his poll numbers go up. I, it seems like that sometimes. Do you feel like that? Oh, I do. I'm incredibly frustrated by that. I, I, I think I'm one of the few legislators that, you know, on a regular basis speaks out and publicly criticizes the governor on issues from, you know, his uh, positions towards uh, helping immigrants, uh, to addressing inequality, to uh, improving our criminal justice system, to, you know, truly combating climate change and, and things like the MBTA and education. So I, I am definitely frustrated. I, I think that, you know, there are some of my colleagues that are intimidated by the governor being popular. I think that also whoever is governor, legislators often sort of like to be on the side of that governor, like to be associated with someone who's popular. But it really, to me, should get back to policies and, you know, are his policies really helping the people of each of our districts? And I, I think, you know, his policies are, are margin, marginally beneficial, but, uh, but certainly not any bold ideas that are really going to dramatically improve the lives of the people of Massachusetts. Well, I think uh, we certainly won't accuse you, Senator Eldridge, of, of not being willing to speak out or uh, <laughs> be candid, so I appreciate your, your coming in. Uh, I should just add that we did uh, try to see if Jason Cotty or somebody from the state party could join us. They did not uh, uh, come up with anyone uh, who, could, who could sit in with us, uh, but we really appreciate your uh, coming by and, and talking with us about these things. No, great to come by today. Thanks very much for having me. And, and yeah, I hope this continue conversation continues. I will say from that Globe story, I've gotten dozens of emails from activists across the state saying that they're unhappy with the status quo and, and they want to see change and uh, interesting to see what how that shapes things going into the next session. Great. Well, we'll definitely be, be watching for that. So I am Michael Jonas from Commonwealth Magazine, uh, along with my colleague Bruce Mole. Thanks for listening to another episode of the podcast. You can subscribe to the podcast via SoundCloud or iTunes. Thanks again for joining us.